Good morning, Gateway. Good to see you guys on this wonderfully rainy Sunday. You know, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Dean Salami, and um, welcome, as it's been mentioned, welcome to the second week of our Advent series. Advent is those four weeks leading up to Christmas, and during this time, we celebrate the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just as a refresher, we're looking at Advent a little differently. If you were here last week, uh, we titled this series, Why Advent? And I'm going to give you a quick summary of what we did last week and launch us into our time. So before I do that, let me um, start us off in prayer. So Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity to be able to gather together. Lord, we are so excited about celebrating Christmas. Uh, but Father, we, we, we recognize that the world has commercialized Christmas. And our focus today, Lord God, is to get Christmas back where it belongs, on Christ. I ask, Father God, that you would show how wonderful your son is to us once again. So as we celebrate this season, Lord God, we will realize that it calls on us to do more than worship a baby in the manger. He's our king. And so help us to see our king today, Lord God. And as we do, Lord God, you know that the only thing standing between what you want for your people is me. And so as I always do, Lord God, I ask that you don't allow me to be in the way, that you remove me so that your people would see you for who you are, that you would be glorified, and Jesus would be honored. Hear now this prayer, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week we started with the why. I tried to understand, or I tried to put forward, why it was necessary for Jesus to come. And we talked about four things that we observed from last week, a problem, a pattern, a progression, and finally we were reminded about God's purpose. The problem is that human beings perpetually disobey God to our own detriment. The Bible calls that problem sin. Sin locks us into a pattern of behavior. That pattern of behavior has a progression toward greater evil, but despite that, God's purposes are not thwarted. Now, while we saw these things in humans, uh, humanity's infancy, what we realize is that it's still around us today. So when we asked the question uh, last week, why Advent, we recognize that the problem persists, the patterns of behaviors are still there, and the progression of evil has gotten worse. But we remember that the purpose of God is not thwarted. But today, we're going to fix our, um, our attention solely on Jesus, because he is the center of God's purpose, right? And he also has on him all our hopes resting. Now, some of you may be thinking, why are we taking this approach? We just sang about baby Jesus. What happened to baby Jesus in the manger? Well, in light of what we, re we were reminded of last week, we can't afford to have baby Jesus stay in the manger. Ba baby Jesus grew up. Now, Jesus is also Emmanuel. That means God is with us. And so when we ask the question, why Advent for this week? The answer is clear. It's because in Jesus, we get to see how life is lived when God is the focal point of our lives. Let me say that again. In Jesus, we get to see how life is lived when God is the focal point of our lives. Now, with that, I want to 
turn our attention to our passage today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And I'm just going to break it down. So allow me to read just the first four verses. It reads thus, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now you need to know that Matthew, the writer of this gospel, is a Jew. And his audience is Jewish. And so what he's doing by presenting Jesus in this way is that he wants to present him as the long-awaited Messiah. In the first couple of verses of Matthew, um, Matthew mentions two things of consequence. The wilderness and the number 40. Any good and respectable Jew would take that cue immediately. It reminds them of the Exodus. When they left Egypt, they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. And this is how Matthew, in essence, is showing how Jesus identifies with his Jewish audience. Jesus' temptation is like a reenactment of that wilderness journey. But do you remember one of the things that the Jews complained about in the wilderness? Food. What is Jesus doing here? He's fasting from food. And he's fasting for 40 days, and then he's going to have to deal with the devil. Now, Jesus not only identifies with Matthew's Jewish audience, the introduction of the devil, who is that tempter, takes us all the way back to Genesis 3. That's where all of humanity's problems began. And this is what we saw last week. So in reality, Matthew shows us that Jesus is identifying with all of humanity. Now, when I say Jesus identifies with all of humanity, you know, I'm not using that word as identified these days sometimes is used. You know, I know a man who, uh, I mean, I read a story of a man who identifies as a dog. He spent $14,000 to realize his dream to become a border collie. Now, if it weren't sad, it'd be funny. But that's not the way Jesus is trying to identify. That man is looking to mimic something that he is not, and he will never be. Matthew has Jesus identifying with his audience um, in a specific way, and so let me draw your attention to what the scriptures say from Hebrews 2. It says this, since the children, referring to the Jewish children, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Another passage, Hebrews 4, says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Jesus did not come, he did not become human to mimic us. 
if we learn anything from last week, there's something horribly wrong with the human race. Jesus is not trying to be like us. He became human to minister to us. That is where these verses, this is what these verses clearly spell out. Jesus is, he, Jesus is who we are meant to be, and Matthew uses this episode in his life to show just how Jesus identifies with us. He will experience the same trials as Israel. He will face the same tempter as humanity did, but he will face that enemy in a different way. Where we failed, he will not. But that begs the question, how does he succeed where we fail? You know, we will automatically punt or default to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. In the section that we read before Matthew 4, we see Jesus' baptism. As he comes out of the waters of baptism, the God, from, God the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. So we know he's the Son of God. Is that the trump factor? Right? That's why he could do it. Yeah, he is the son of God, but is that the reason he's able to do what he does? Jesus succeeds because he is the son of God, right? That has to be the answer. Yes, but that's not the whole story. See, Philippians 2, 6-7, it says, Who, meaning Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So he is indeed the Son of God, equal to God in every way. But in this scenario, he does not use that to his own advantage. And we can clearly see that in Matthew. So if you look at verse 1 again of um, Matthew 4, it says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness after his baptism. And in a minute, what's going to happen is that we're going to see that the devil takes Jesus places. And what's clear in this is that Jesus is not in control. He is allowing himself to be led around. But it gets better. Matthew does not record this one point, but Mark and Luke does. In the wilderness where Jesus is led, there are wild animals. So let's back up for a second and tally this up. So Jesus is not in control. He is being led around. He is in the wilderness with wild animals. He's not going to have anything to eat for 40 days, and he has to face the devil. Now, if that was any of us, we would be losing our minds right now, right? Anxiety levels would be through the roof. So if it were me, I might let you get away with telling me where you're not taking me, okay? But fast for 40 days? I couldn't fast for 40 minutes. And what you're saying here is that you're going to put me in the wilderness with wild animals, and then I'm going to have to deal with the devil? Oh, no, thank you. No, no, no. Not for me. But see, listen to what Jesus says in these following verses. In John 4.34, he says, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 5.30 says, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. 
and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. And that right there is the difference between us and Jesus. His singular focus is doing his Father's will. His circumstances are irrelevant. His comfort is irrelevant. The dangers he's going to, he may face with those animals, irrelevant. And best of all, the devil is irrelevant. Nothing and no one will stand in his way to do his Father's will. His trust in the Father is unwavering. And that is how he succeeds where we don't. Why Advent? Only in Jesus do we see how life is lived with God as our focal point. Jesus fasted for 40 days and is understandably hungry. It's at this point the tempter shows up. Funny how strategic the devil is, isn't it? He starts by challenging Jesus to satisfy his hunger. Turn these stones into bread. You are hungry. There's nothing wrong with satisfying your hunger. Use your power to turn some of these stones to bread. The devil is not questioning if Jesus is the Son of God. He's simply trying to goad Jesus into acting for his own benefit. The devil does not realize who he is talking to. And as we read, early, as we read earlier, Jesus emptied himself of power to become a servant. He will not use that power because doing God's will is his singular focus. In order to accentuate his stance, look at how Jesus responds to the devil. He quotes scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. I will have more to say about Jesus' use of scripture in combating the devil a little bit later, but it's interesting that he quotes exclusively from the book of Deuteronomy. What Matthew is doing here is maintaining the link between Jesus and Israel's wilderness journey. But more on that a little bit later. The devil has no comeback to this. Jesus says, food is not my priority, and it's not what drives me. I live according to the word of God. That's what drives me. So, you know that begs a question for us. What drives us when we are tempted? Yeah, I'll let you think about that for a second. How about that? So, round one goes to Jesus. One nothing. Jesus is up. So let's continue in Matthew. It says, then the devil took him in Matthew 4, 5 to 7. It says, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Unable to get Jesus to use his power to satisfy his hunger, the devil takes a different approach. He takes Jesus to the holy city and he has him stand on the highest point in the temple. Now, how the devil gets Jesus there is, um, let's just say it's a point of a lot of speculation. And I'm not going to go there. What I just want to reiterate to you is that Jesus is still not controlling his circumstances. And now the situation is getting dangerous. 
The devil is turning up the pressure. He went from tempting Jesus, a simple thing of just satisfying his hunger. Now he's asking Jesus to put his life in jeopardy so that he can make God prove that he cares for him. Now, in addition to a change of scenery, notice the different tactic that the devil uses. Jesus used scripture the first time. Now the devil decides to use scripture. Since Jesus countered him with scripture in the first round, the devil uses scripture to tempt Jesus in round two. He is trying to beat Jesus at his own game. And the devil quotes from Psalm 91, 11 to 12. This verse speaks to, to the care God gives to those that trust him. He will dispatch his angels to protect those who trust him so that he will, that person will not come to harm. Now, it's important to note that the devil is not misquoting scripture. But what he's doing is misapplying it. It is true that God cares and looks after those who trust him. But what the devil is essentially saying here is this. Since you are the son of God, you trust God. Make God prove it that he cares for you. Jump. Now, where the devil takes Jesus, you have to make sure is the highest point in the, on the temple but it bottoms out to a ravine. So in other words, it's a long way down. If God cares for you, he will send his angels to save you before you hit the bottom. You won't be hurt. Just jump. The way Jesus responds to this temptation helps us see why he is the ideal model for us. His trust in God, coupled with his understanding of Scripture, helps him to see right through the devil's schemes. And he once again quotes Scripture, Deuteronomy. This time, he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, and it says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test, as you did at Massa. What happened at Massa? Well, that's in Exodus 17, 1-3. Let me just read those quick verses for you. It says, The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they just grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst. The children of Israel were testing God to force his hand as if he had not already proven that he could take care of them. He freed them from the clutches of the, of the Egyptians, after all. Of course he cares for them. But they don't trust him. Jesus knows that the devil's temptation is the equivalent of this episode in Israel's history. Testing God to force his hand is not trusting him, and Jesus will have no part in it. He counters the devil with this text that exposes his misapplication of Scripture. And you know what, is, what I find ironic here? I don't know how many days it was that the children of Israel traveled. It must have been just a few days. They were crying and screaming, complaining about thirst. Jesus hasn't eaten here for 40 days. And he's dealing with the devil. And oh, by the way, he's holding his ground. 
This devil doesn't succeed. And round two goes again to Jesus. If you keep the score, that's two nothing. So let's move on. Matthew 4, 8 to 11. And it says there, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. The devil's not doing so good here. He, used to, he, he, he is used to being able to manipulate humans with various schemes, but none of them are working on Jesus. He's got one more shot. He offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. There is only one thing he wants. Jesus must bow down and worship him. Now, have you ever said something to someone, and once you said it, you realize you really messed up? You know what's funny? My daughter Amanda had surgery one time. And whatever they gave her, she was like loopy, okay? Once she came out of uh, surgery, she looked at me. She said, Dad, and she was a little groggy. I said, you doing okay? She said, no, Dad. Yeah, I'm doing great. And she starts yelling. It's like, calm down. Hey, no, that nurse, you did a great job. You deserve a raise. She's giving everybody in the, in the, in the covering room um, um, raises, okay? It's hilarious, right? And she's just, she's not being rude. It's the drugs, right? Then she says something to me in a way that she never really talks to me. And I said to her, okay, so who is it that you're talking to? Through the drugs, she straightens up, her eyes focus, oh, sorry, Dad. She knew where this was going to go. Different than the other two. Jesus reacts the strongest to this last temptation. He quotes from Deuteronomy 16, stating that God is the only one worthy of worship and service. Jesus cannot stomach the idea of being disloyal to God. This was not the case for Israel, though. It's often not the case for us, is it, if we're being honest? They had a persistent, Israel it is, they had a persistent problem with idolatry. They were not faithful to the covenant they made with God. They would break it over and over again. Once again, they failed. And here, once again, Jesus succeeds. I love verse 11 because God did indeed dispatch his angels. The angels didn't come, though, because God, I mean, Jesus tested God. The angels came because Jesus trusted God. He stayed obedient to the way, uh, to the will of God. And the way uh, Jesus deals with the devil and his temptations are extremely, to me, instructive. Just a few observations. First of all, and we look, what we look at in this entire exchange with the devil, we realize that Peter was right. I mean Peter the apostle. He, says that he talks about the devil prowling around looking for people to destroy. And the devil is, is indiscriminate. He doesn't have any respect for any people. He went after Jesus, the son of God. He is enemy number one. But second, Jesus shows us that we do not have to fall victim to temptation. We can and we must resist. 
Third, trust and obedience to God are critical to us being able to resist. The fourth observation, knowledge and the understanding of Scripture is pretty important. Okay, of the last three, rest, uh, resisting temptation, trust and obedience to God, knowledge of and understanding the scripture, which of these three presents the greatest problem to you? Do you know why? The answers to those questions are pretty important. As Nancy found out, let me tell you about Nancy. She was sharing her testimony to uh, a group of people, and she began with, I should have listened. I should have listened. Well, what do you mean by I should have listened? You know, all my life I was taught about the faith. I was asked to trust God, and I thought I did. But then when I got married, I realized that something was wrong. Something that happened when I was young. Something I never really gave over to God. You see, I was a very scared child. And so I became controlling and demanding. So when I got married, if my husband didn't satisfy what I wanted, I made him pay for it. We had children, and, but after a while, the children saw through me, and they saw that I became a monster. They're adults now, and they won't have anything to do with me. My, my husband hung on there for a little while, but after a while, he left as well. When she was asked, well, what do you think the problem was? She said, my biggest problem was that I didn't trust God. And because of it, I couldn't obey him. I needed control because I was so scared. And now that I look at it, looking back, I realize that I was guilty of idolatry. Because the God I actually was serving was me. That God didn't have anything to say to me. It couldn't check me. That God could not make me right at all. And I became a victim of my own circumstances. Now, she realizes this. When we take the time out to do a little bit of searching, what do we see? Now, by marking these three things out that I talked about, um, it, the danger is that we can become legalistic about them, right? We can make it about following rules. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day tried that, and we already know it doesn't work. Jesus constantly berated them about how wrong they were. But what Jesus shows us here in Matthew is different. The most important thing we need to make sure we do not miss is how Jesus was able to pull this off. Because he emptied himself, he did not muster the strength of the divine. It wasn't like that. If you remember, during his baptism, it was the Holy Spirit that descended onto him. It was the Holy Spirit that led um, Jesus through to the wilderness to be tempted. 
It was also the Holy Spirit who sustained him through his temptations. Now, I want, to, I want you to take a look at John 20, 20, 21 through 22, because once Jesus went to the cross, he offered himself for all of us. He rose from the dead, and in one scene, before he ascends, we read this. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Notice what Jesus imparts to his followers. It's the same power that enabled him. He imparts to us. He not only forged the path for us, we need to walk, but he comes back and walks with us through the Holy Spirit. Why Advent? Because it is only in Jesus do we see how life is lived with God as our focal point. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. And if you guys don't mind, let me pray us out. Because this is important, all right? This is really what Advent is about. Looking at the life of Jesus, seeing how he lived, and then us doing the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we've got to see your son up close and personal. Lord Jesus, we are in awe of you. We are grateful to you for showing us the example that we needed. Thank you. Thank you for living the life that you live so that we could see that it is possible. All our hopes rest in you, Lord God. And while we look back and celebrate the first time you came, Lord, we look even with greater expectation for when you return. But until such time, help us, remind us to live in the power of the Holy Spirit that we might be able to glorify you and give a true account to the world of how great our Lord and Savior, Jesus, the Son of God, truly is. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen.